Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I'd really appreciate it if you would rate, review, subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcast. That really helps us get the podcast in front of more people. Thank you so, so much to everybody that does that. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I am, of course, at DJ XIV on Instagram and Twitter. Get our Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat. This is the look for summer. I don't know what you're going to be doing this summer without this hat. It's going to be a really hot, blazing in your eye sun situation if you do not have the pop pantheon niche legend dad hat so go to poppantheonpod.com in our merch store and get yourself one of those hats of course join us on patreon at pop pantheon all access where we are doing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month our most recent episode is a deep dive into kesha's new album gag order we've recently covered chromatica on its third birthday we do new music speed rounds all the time with some of your favorite past pop pantheon guests and my friends it's really popping over there patreon.com slash pop pantheon at the icon tier or click the link in the show notes of this episode and Gorgeous, gorgeous, the bi-coastal phenomenon, of course, on June 9th in Los Angeles, Lady Marmalade Night is happening, and our debut in Brooklyn on June 16th at the Sultan Room. I want to see all of my New York and LA-based niche legends at Gorgeous, Gorgeous, my queer pop party happening across this great land. All right, a big episode today. We are talking about the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin, one of the most influential pop figures to ever exist, and of course, the greatest singer of all time. This was an incredibly moving story, not just about some of the best pop music that's ever existed, but also about an artist who embodies the spirit of what it means to be American. There's really nothing that could overstate the meaning of this artist's work, career, and artistry. So, without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Aretha Franklin. Look, lots of people can sing, and for the entire history of recorded music, there have been all kinds of singing voices. Some are big and booming, some small and sultry, some voices convey pathos and longing, others lasciviousness, others ebullience. But as far as the story of American music goes, there is one voice that towers above the rest as a monument, not just to the sheer technical outer limits of what one voice can do, but also to what it can contain. The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, is not just the greatest singer in American history, although she is that. Greater still, her voice is, in many ways, the sound of our nation, in all its agony and ecstasy, tragedy and joy. President Barack Obama once said of Aretha Franklin, American history wells up when Aretha sings. That is quite the mantle for one person or one voice to bear. But boy, did Aretha, in her storied 60-plus year career, carry it off with aplomb and through some of the most astounding, enduring classic songs the world has ever known. (laughs) 
Aretha Franklin was born in 1942 in Memphis, Tennessee, to Barbara Franklin, a skilled piano player and vocalist in her own right, and Reverend C.L. Franklin. While Aretha was still a young child, the family moved to Detroit, Michigan, where Reverend Franklin became the pastor of the storied New Bethel Baptist Church. There, the Reverend became famous for his rousing sermons, often delivered in a style that melded speaking and singing, sometimes referred to as whooping. In private, he was a serial cheater, and by the time she was six, Aretha's parents had separated with her mother relocating to Buffalo, New York, and then dying shortly thereafter in 1952. Aretha's upbringing as Reverend C.L. Franklin's daughter had a profound impact on her as a person and artist, both in that she discovered her prodigious singing talents while performing at the New Bethel, and that his growing fame over the course of her childhood led to her spending personal time with everyone from gospel legends Mahalia Jackson and Clara Ward, pop and R&B icons like Sam Cooke and Marvin Gaye, as well as civil rights leaders like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom paid regular visits to hear Reverend Franklin's sermons. Taking notice of her walloping otherworldly mezzo-soprano voice, her father also took a serious vested interest in Aretha's career, becoming her manager at age 12 and installing recording equipment in the church so she could cut her first record, 1956's gospel album, Spirituals. When she hit 18, Franklin became interested in pivoting out of gospel and into pop, soon thereafter signing a deal with Columbia Records in 1960. There, she released a series of albums which saw her exploring everything from jazz to standards to blues. And while she never delivered anything short of miraculous vocal performances. These efforts failed to make Aretha Franklin a star. Frustrated by her stalling career, in 1966, Aretha opted not to renew her contract with Columbia and instead signed with legendary R&B producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. Wexler had a vision for Aretha where he would utilize, rather than obscure, her gospel chops on rousing, muscular, thoroughly modern R&B records, effectively blending the secular and the divine. The results were instantaneously explosive. With her first Atlantic single, the Wexler produced I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, becoming her first top 10 hit, and her second, a titanic freewheeling overhaul of Otis Redding's Respect, which Franklin herself rearranged and turned into perhaps the pop anthem of female agency for the ages, hitting number one in 1967 and rocketing Aretha into superstardom. The success of Respect sent Aretha on a fabled run through the late 60s, characterized by classic hits like the stomping R&B heat rocks Think and Chain of Fools, as well as soaring ballads like You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. As delivered by Aretha, these songs became more than just pop hits. Unfurling against the tumultuous backdrop of the civil rights movement of the late 60s, as well as the Vietnam War and women's liberation movement, Aretha's music and once-in-a-generation voice, as well as her on-record persona, at once exceedingly powerful and righteously anguished, became the soundtrack of one of the most seismic cultural shifts America had ever experienced. They also made her one of the most famous pop cultural figures and venerated singers on the planet. Aretha's sound continued to evolve through the early 1970s on a series of critically acclaimed records that became increasingly experimental, including the hit 1971 album Young, Gifted, and Black, which saw her trying on everything from psychedelia to funk. However, by the mid-70s, Franklin's commercial fortunes waned as the sound of music began to 
shift in earnest towards the disco period, and longtime collaborator Wexler, who produced many of her biggest hits, left Atlantic. By the late 1970s, and after a series of flop albums, the once unstoppable Franklin seemed to be past her peak as a hitmaker, left behind as an emblem of a bygone pop era. In 1980, however, and nearing 40 years old, Franklin began to stage one of the most unlikely comebacks in pop history, leaving Atlantic and signing with legendary record man Clive Davis at Arista Records. There, Davis and Franklin began to rebuild her career with a run of singles and albums, many of which paired her with current hitmakers who helped recontextualize her voice with contemporary sounds, and that slowly but surely returned Aretha to chart supremacy, giving her career a second wind and exposing her to an entire new generation of fans. This peaked in the mid-1980s with the one-two punch of the 1985 album Who's Zoomin' Who, produced by on-the-rise hitmaker Narada Michael Walden, and which spun off a series of classic hits of the era like Freeway of Love, Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves, and the title track, as well as her quintessential duet with George Michael the following year, the exuberant dance record I Knew You Were Waiting For Me, which became her first Hot 100 chart topper since Respect nearly 20 years earlier. Throughout the late 80s and through to her death in 2018, Franklin continued releasing music and while she was never able to regain the same commercial foothold again, she was immediately held up by nearly every pop singer who came after her as Ground Zero itself, the voice of all voices and one of the most essential American pop stars to have ever existed. Aretha Franklin has sold over 75 million records worldwide and charted 73 songs on the Hot 100, including 17 top 10 singles and two number ones. She was nominated for 40 44 Grammys, winning 18, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. She was a Kennedy Center honoree, recipient of the National Medal of the Arts, and in 2019 became a Pulitzer Prize winner, quote, for her indelible contribution to American music and culture for more than five decades. Franklin has twice been ranked as the greatest singer of all time by Rolling Stone and has been cited as an influence by everyone from Natalie Cole to Freddie Mercury, Shaka Khan, Luther Vandross, George Michael, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, Mary J. Blige, Kelly Clarkson, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, John Legend, Jennifer Hudson, Chloe and Halle, and countless others. In 1987, she became the first woman ever to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and in 2005, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George W. Bush. Here with me to discuss the work, career, and life of the legendary Aretha Franklin is author of the book, Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul, Mark Bego. Uh-huh. Okay, I am here with celebrity biographer and author of the book, Aretha Franklin, The Queen of Soul, Mark Bego. Mark, welcome to Pop Pantheon. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. It is an honor to have you here. We're talking about an American giant today, and I knew that we couldn't approach this topic without having somebody here with us that really knew her story, her work inside and out. And I'm so glad that we got to connect. As I mentioned to you just now, you literally wrote the book on her. So I'm super honored and excited to have you here to help educate me, educate our audience on one of the most titanic figures in the pop pantheon, somebody that clearly has 
had a seismic influence on the sound of American pop music, on the shape of pop stardom as it came after her, and who obviously has just released an absolute panoply of American classics that I think, even if you're not super familiar with who Aretha is, maybe you're younger, maybe you just didn't grow up knowing the ins and outs of who Aretha Franklin is, this music endures in this incredibly powerful way. These songs are part of the fabric of Americana, in a sense, respect, chain of fools, think. All of these songs are integral, like apple pie, to what it means to be American in some ways. I wanted to kick this off by sharing a quote with you and just hear your thoughts on it. When Aretha died, Barack Obama said of her, nobody embodies more fully the connection between the African-American spiritual the blues, R&B, rock and roll, the way that hardship and sorrow were transformed into something full of beauty and vitality and hope. American history wells up when Aretha sings. I'm curious how that quote lands with you and what you think makes Aretha such a singular and enduring figure in American pop cultural history. I think that Aretha has had such a varied and long career and she has recorded so much music in so many different eras and in so many different styles that there is almost no one in the entire recording business who hasn't been able to touch everybody's musical taste, zero in on their emotions, and touch their souls and define an era of their lives. And what is it about Aretha as an artist that allowed her to embody that role in the firmament? What's specific about her? What makes her singular here? She had a lifetime of drama and trauma. And I feel <laughs> that her music was like her psychiatrist. She would go in the studio mm. and put everything in it and block out everything else that was going on in her life, whether it was fights with her husband, fights with her father, her weight, whatever problems are going on. When she got in the studio and connected with a song, she gave her all. Right. And that's kind of like what soul music means to you in a sense? I mean, that's what she's known as the queen of soul. What do you think that means to be the queen of soul? Well, I think her soulfulness is something that is really inherent to Aretha. She dug deep down in herself to express herself in her songs. And maybe a different singer would just stay completely in this range or not go off and hoot and howl on her songs. But Aretha would just let loose if she decided to go off and scat, if she decided to go off and hit a high note and just go for it. She was all over the map. She didn't necessarily play by the rules. She wasn't someone that they could take in to the studio and go, okay, you're a jazz singer, just going to do this nice light thing. When she got to Atlantic Records and really let loose, you didn't know what was going to come out of her mouth. You're going to connect to whatever mood she was in that second. Mm. And I think that ability really kept her at the forefront. Yeah. You know, I was thinking so much about listening to her music, the sort of dichotomy, but balance that she strikes when she sings between technical proficiency on the highest level. She was such a technician of singing. It's why I think we hold her up as probably the greatest American singer of all time. But also that paired with a true sense of in-the-moment inspiration and improvisational quality, her ability to interpret things and to seem completely organic in the moment paired with that technical prowess feels like a really integral element of her artistry that sort of is why we are still talking about her all of these years later and why she is that figure in the history of just 
American singing, that balance between her sort of ability to be the most knowledgeable and scientific engineer of singing, and at the same time, this incredibly in the moment, and I think this is possibly where the religious aspect of things comes into it, ability to inhabit divine inspiration in the moment as well. Does that resonate? Absolutely. And there was a period, especially from the late 60s to early 70s, I would say, starting with I Say a Little Prayer, there are fabulous songs that Dionne Warwick did, Mm -hmm. that you take something like Bridge Over Troubled Waters that Mm. Simon and Garfunkel did. Paul Simon wrote the song. So a masterful original version. How could someone come along months later and redo it and end up with a big top 10 Grammy award-winning hit again, Aretha became the person that was like, oh yeah, well, that was the huge number one hit, but this is the Aretha version. And the Aretha version always had this trademark Aretha-ness to it. I don't know what else to say, but she would give everything her own spin and people were like, oh my God, what is she going to do with this song? I can't wait to hear it. Mm. And very few people are like that where they take the original that was a huge hit that everyone loves and then make it a huger hit and something that is, oh, that's an Aretha song now. Right. That's so true. And I don't even know if people realize that her signature song, Respect, is in fact a cover of an Otis Redding song. Exactly. She had this way of taking on songs from other people and fully inhabiting them, embodying them, and making you almost forget that there was other versions of them that existed. That was the titanic power of her. And then in just thinking about the Obama quote, before we get into the specifics, I feel like a really important element of this, and I'd be curious what you think about this is whether or not she was even making direct reference to the racial history of America, of the struggle of Black people, she was able to embody that or imbue everything that came out of her mouth with that history. There was something about the way that her voice communicated feeling that felt as much about her own personhood and experience as a human being as it did an expression of a broader struggle that occurred and that she became a representative of, especially during the 60s and 70s in the civil rights movement, but she could be singing about something that wasn't a history lesson about Black history, but yet everything that she did just inherently felt imbued with that history in a sense. I feel that when she recorded Respect, I mean, it's a song about a love affair originally, but then Aretha took it and they pinned all of this Black history and the Black struggle and the Black experience in America to that song. I don't think that was part of the original or her intent at all. I think that it just resonated in a way and became also for the women's movement too, like men have got to respect me. My man has got to respect me. You know, it kind of resonated into everything. But then on the other hand, when you look at what she was doing during this era, her father, who we'll go into Reverend C.L. Franklin, very influential reverend in Detroit, Michigan, where I'm from, he hung out with Dr. Martin Luther King. So there was that whole connection I don't think that the song Respect was a tribute to Martin Luther King and the Black movement. Sure, sure, sure. But it happened at the same time. And everyone knowing that she came through that personally was friends with Martin Luther King. It kind of connects the dots for people. Totally. And then looping back to this idea of soul music, I think somehow 
how the connection between her religious upbringing with her dad and her connection to learning to sing in the church through gospel, that ability to sing through divine inspiration in that way, paired with her connection to the civil rights movement and what that meant for the history of Black people in this country. I think that's why she is that voice. That's why she imbues everything she does with that particular feeling that's not just about singing that sounds great or a voice that sounds incredible, but feels like it contains the depth or wells of depth of history in it. And I think that that's the reason that Aretha Franklin is Aretha Franklin. There's a lot of people that can sing, you know? Exactly. We have American Idol. We've all seen it. There's lots of people that can go in there and fucking rip some song, but not everybody can wallop you like Aretha Franklin can. In fact, almost nobody can. And I think that it is those factors that come together to make her this signature voice in this way. It kind of goes back to my Detroit roots in that I'm a big Motown fan. Motown records is everything. Mary Wilson of the Supremes was my best Mm. friend. Loved her, loved her, loved her. Yeah. Loved the Supremes. (laughs) So you look at the music of the Supremes, Temptations, Four Tops, Yeah. very orchestrated. Mm -hmm. You could adopt this stuff to a nightclub act, which they did, Motown did. Of course. Black music was very often Nat King Cole or Mm -hmm. Sarah Vaughn or Ella Fitzgerald or a very sophisticated style and style of singing. Right. So come 1967, the Supremes are the biggest female Black group in the world, the Black singers. And when Aretha came on the radio with respect in 1967, it was like, oh, my God, who is this? (laughs) What on earth? Let me hear that again. Yeah. So she had something that was different for the era in which she created this music. It was something completely unique and different and just blasted its way through the airwaves. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a bunch of time in the last couple of weeks getting into all this work. And no matter what she's doing, you are just pummeled by her her force of being, the voice, the emotion, the rawness. As you mentioned, it doesn't matter whether she's making a synth pop 80s song or she's making a hymn. They all have that same sort of, you're just bold completely over when she opens her mouth. And she retained it really till the end. I mean, I was watching that performance at the Kennedy Center Honors where she sang Natural Woman and she was just as fucking amazing at that moment as she was in 1967. All right, so let's Let's go back in time and get some light background on Aretha's early life. So my first question for you is, who is Aretha Franklin? Where does she grow up? And I guess like in broad strokes, because I know you probably know the ins and outs of this, but we're going to take this on a bit of a top level here. What are the elements to her upbringing? And you were starting to talk about this with her dad that sort of inform the artist that Aretha Franklin is going to become. Well, as a general overview connecting her childhood to who she became, she's someone who grew up in the church learned how to sing with a choir, Mm -hmm. learned how to be a soloist with a choir, and learned how to command an audience through her singing at a very early age. She was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Her father was a gospel minister in a church there. Mm -hmm. Her mother was a gospel singer in the choir that he met there. She had two sisters and two brothers. They were all involved in the church, the choir, the whole church life. At a certain point in the 1950s, Her father was quite a wild one. He really liked to party. Mm -hmm. He really liked to have a good time. And 
Apparently, he got a 14-year-old girl pregnant in Memphis and was run out of the church, and his wife left him. Aretha's mother left the father and her children. They moved out of Memphis after the scandal, moved to Detroit, and pieced together their lives as a family unit without a mother. Right. This is Reverend C.L. Franklin. He completely transformed his very prominent role in Memphis to a church called New Bethel Baptist Church in Detroit. And the who's who of Detroit Black society all came to Reverend C.L. Franklin's church Mm. and to hear the incredible choir music that happened every Sunday. And of course, all the Franklin kids, as I mentioned, were part of the choir or had something to do with the church or some sort of church function. Yes, he woke me up this morning I was clothed in my right mind. He didn't let me sleep too late. No, no, he woke me up on time. Now, as a family unit, Reverend C.L. Franklin was well connected with everybody. Some of the people who would come and stay in the house would be gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, gospel singer Clara Ward, Sam Cooke, who became a huge pop star, but before that was a religious singer from Chicago. So Aretha had all these incredible musical influences and incredible musical idols living in her house or visiting her house. Clara Ward would teach her to cook in the kitchen when Aretha was a young teenager. Wow. Just an amazing childhood. Mm-hmm. It's like she grew up to become the person she was groomed to become. She had all these wonderful influences in her life right there as her friends, as her mm-hmm. mentors, teaching her and showing her how to become a successful singer. And I think she took that and applied it to her own singing, saw what was possible with her voice and what was possible of transfixing an audience from on stage to that church. She learned firsthand at the age of 12, she was doing solos in the church. At the age of 14, a recording crew came in that was usually there to record C.L. Franklin's sermons. It came to record Aretha singing, and that became her first album at the age of 14. And it's amazing. It's like she was at the age of 14 doing what she was destined to do as a singing star. with recordings, already with singing live, and already with gaining confidence in her own life through her singing and escaping into her music. My last question for you about this era of Aretha is, did she have a baby during this period? That was something that I was reading about. Okay, I was talking about Aretha escaping her woes and the drama and what have you. Now, what kind of drama does a 12-year-old or 14-year-old have in their lives? Yeah. Other than, oh, school or my parents are mad at me for this, that, and the other thing. She had other elements going on. Yeah. It was not common 
commonly known before my book came out in the late 80s. I did some investigating and I was like, oh, my God. She had a baby when she was 14. Mm. She had a second baby when she was 15. She dropped out of school to take care of her children at home. She was an unwed mother living in Reverend C.L. Franklin's very religious home. What happened? There's all kinds of theories. Was she in love with Sam Cooke and it was Sam Cooke's baby? Was it a neighbor? She never addressed exactly what happened. If you look at the movie with Jennifer Hudson, there's like this inference that someone at a party impregnated her, but there's no answer as to who the father was of these children. For a girl to become pregnant at 14 and again at 15, and then the social stigma of it in such a prominent house, it had to put a lot of pressure on her. It had to be a lot of responsibility for a 14, 15-year-old girl to have to accept. And every Sunday, go to church and act like nothing's bothering you at all. Mm. I don't know what the psyche is there. My theory is that when Reverend C.L. Franklin started to take over Aretha's musical career and wanted her to become a gospel singer and was telling her everything to do, he became so forceful in her life that she couldn't wait to escape from her father, move to New York, get married to a husband who could take care of her, and she ends up with an abusive husband. You know, so she goes from out of the frying pan into the fire, basically. So she's someone who carries her personal traumas and dramas with her through these different growing up phases of her life. Things don't work out well between she and the men in her life. Mm. I think that that kind of fueled this sort of, I will survive to her life, her music, and every decision she made. The men in my life are all out to take advantage of me, and I just have to be true to myself and key into my soul and make my music everything. So Aretha begins her career as a singer of gospel music. How does Aretha's professional singing career go? How does she begin moving out of her father's church and to recording material in the 50s. She ended up impressing someone in the church so much that he got in contact with John Hammond at Columbia Records. And John Hammond is known for being a hugely influential A&R director in the late 50s, early 60s at Columbia and worked at other labels as well. He worked on Billie Holiday, a bunch of her recordings, actually her first recordings, the last of the Bessie Smith recordings even. So he knew soul, gospel, and jazz a lot. He was looking for someone who could become the next Dinah Washington, the next Sarah Vaughan, mm. the next Ella Fitzgerald. I get to hungry for dinner at eight. I like the theater, but never come late. He had Aretha come to New York and audition for him, and he was absolutely blown away. And he ended up signing her to her first contract, a seven-year contract at Columbia Records. And his intent was to turn Aretha into a first-class jazz singer. So those original recordings that he did with her we're kind of a little bit all over the map. Won't you come home, Bill Bailey, and different things like that that he had her doing. Nothing but a fine tooth, though. And I know I'm the thing. Well, it's 
some interesting things, but she really didn't find her groove until later on. But he put her in subsequent Columbia albums with some of the top producers. A lot of people say, oh, Aretha just didn't have the right people working with her. She had the top producers. She had Robert Mersey, who produced people for Barbara Streisand and the Barbara Streisand's phenomenally successful People album. Robert Mersey was producing Aretha's albums. It wasn't that she wasn't put with the best people. She was put with the best people. But they were chasing an audience that's different than, say, Dionne Warwick or Mary Wells or the Shirelles were going for circa 1962, 63, 64. They were going for a completely different market. They weren't trying to turn Aretha Franklin into Connie Francis or any of the other pop singers. They weren't trying to turn her into Dionne Warwick. Mm -hmm. They were trying to make her into a classy jazz singer, which she was. And the miraculous thing is, if you go back and listen to some of those Columbia recordings, you'll put them on and go, oh my God, who is this? You don't even realize this could be the Aretha Franklin of the Respect era. It's someone so focused with such a clean, pure, just crystal clear voice. And that's why I love These recordings were beautiful, but they weren't commercially what was making the charts. So what happens is Dionne Warwick is becoming this huge star. Mm. Diana Ross becoming this huge star. Gladys Knight, all these other people becoming huge stars. And Aretha's kind of left in the dust. Her singles make it to number 89 or something on the charts, and that's it. So she becomes frustrated, and she wants to record more pop material. She did have a minor hit with the song Rockabye Your Baby with a Dixie Melody. That was her biggest Columbia hit. But so cornball. <laughs> million baby kisses, I'm gonna deliver. The minute that you sing that Swan River, Rockabye, your Rockabye, baby. For someone who isn't familiar with the ins and outs of the music of this period, this would have been seen as uncool music in 1962? Yes. Well, it wasn't what, say, the teenage audience that was buying Beatles records and what have you, the buying millions of them. Yeah. Instead, she was getting the small category of people that bought jazz albums back then. Mm. And I think that they had those corny things on there because they didn't know what to do with her. Right. They knew they had a diamond, but they couldn't find the setting for it. It wasn't quite working. So she became very frustrated. Mm -hmm. She was married to Ted White. She had gone from her father being her manager and being heavy handed with her personal life mm. and with her career to getting Ted White being heavy handed with her music and her personal career. Mm. And you know, the frustrations just kept mounting for her. She didn't know what to do. Clearly, things were not working at Columbia as the record contract was nearing a halt 1966, 1967. Traditionally, all recording contracts would be seven years. Right. So as the Columbia contract, she very optimistically had signed and produced a lot of very interesting albums, didn't make her into the hit that she knew she could be and that everyone realized she could 
could be. So I'm interested by the fact that you're characterizing this as she has this almost Svengali-ish father and then this controlling husband because so much about Aretha's peak era music is about her claiming her independence, claiming her autonomy as a woman, claiming her autonomy as a black woman. Obviously, none of that force of independence that defines her on-record persona in her peak music is evident in this early work in your estimation. Right. She basically, especially at Columbia, went in and did what she was told. Right. We're going to do this. We've got an orchestra. You're doing this song. Yeah. We're going for this particular thing. Right. So you're dealing with someone who's in modern parlance might have been considered a flop. You had your seven years. Yeah. <laughs> she had her seven years. It didn't click. Nothing was happening. How does she make the move to Atlantic Records? And I guess my question for you in that context is who is Jerry Wexler and how do the two of them come together here to restyle and create a new vision for who Aretha Franklin should be as a artist? Jerry Wexler was a white Jewish man living in New York who loved black music. When Atlantic Records started, he was the one that sought out people like Otis Redding to sign to Atlantic Records. like Wilson Pickett to sign to Atlantic Records. And he heard all those recordings. And when I interviewed Jerry Wexler for this particular book, he said, the one that did it for me was if ever I could leave you from Camelot, the Broadway song from Camelot, he said, you could do anything with that voice. That voice was so clear and pure and her ability to hit the notes so amazing. Imagine what I could do if I set her loose in the recording studio. Seeing you in summer and really opened up her mind musically and opened up her voice audibly. So she meets Wexler, they connect, he signs her to a deal at Atlantic and they begin working on new material that's gonna completely reinvent Aretha's sound. Her breakthrough hit is this song in 1967, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You. What is happening on this song that sort of embodies this new, revitalized, reimagined Aretha? How would you describe this music? What is it about? What does it sound like? And what does she sound like on it? She's really a torch singer on it. It's a torch kind of approach to it where this is a woman singing her heart out. She is in love with this man and this is it. And I don't care what anyone says, I'm going to be with him. And she just really sang her heart out on that. And I think that this is what connected with everybody. And if you listen to that recording, you still connect with that voice. You still get the message. Mm -hmm. It was this huge breakthrough for her. It's so interesting. I was thinking, listening to it, A, I mean, thinking of the way she incorporated her religious background into this music, but then the connection between 
the religious and the sexual was something that was so obvious to me on this record and I think is something that kind of defines a lot of the material in this time period. She brings the same passion and inspiration that she would bring to singing in church to the song about this man and there's real heat and sweat in this recording. You hear this and there's something sexy and simmering and hot about it. I kept writing in my notes, there's heat here. There's something steamy going on here and this is a big theme in her music that is apparent here which is that this guy's a fucking dog i mean that seems to be the gist of this whole thing she says you're no good you're lying you're a cheat i don't know why i let you do these things to me but essentially the thing that keeps her with him is that she's kind of horny for him exactly you're ruining my life you're making yeah. me crazy more please more bring yeah. it on i mean and who can relate you know what i'm saying so exactly and i think that's one of the keys yeah that connection between her soul singing or her gospel roots being funneled into this secular sort of idea of romance or these interpersonal romantic and sexual dynamics gives it this really fascinating power. She's summoning divine inspiration to sing about the most mundane and obvious and easily relatable part of the human experience, which is dating somebody you know is wrong for you because you can't stop. You're addicted to them. And I thought that that was such an interesting element to what connects here? What allows her to transition from this person that sings in church to this person that's singing pop music? That felt like the kind of linchpin of the idea. It makes me want to hear something that doesn't exist. Aretha singing, I'm addicted to love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She should have covered that because it really kind of just said it all right there. Right. You're horrible for me, but I'm addicted to love. <laughs> yeah. Which is honestly, I mean, a big theme in Aretha's music is men and how messed up they are. It really does feel like an establishing hit to her on record persona here as well. This is who Aretha's going to be in a lot of this period of her music, it feels like to me. Right. And it's that pain, that hurt, that anger that Obama was referencing, yes, it was linked in a sort of ethereal way to broader American history, but it's also able to sort of operate and register in a really powerful way when she's dealing with basic human emotions or basic human dynamics, as occurs on this particular song of like a woman wronged, the most obvious and common pop trope through history up to the present day. I mean, this could be Ring the Alarm by Beyonce in the same way as it's this song. You know what I mean? It's really interesting. Exactly. It's love songs that drive the music industry mainly. Yeah. There's protest songs, there's folk songs, but it's really love songs that everyone remembers and is attracted to. Right. And Aretha excelled at them. So this song becomes a number four hit. It becomes her breakthrough hit, but it's really later that year when she releases a song we've already referenced a number of times, Respect, that kind of establishes her, becomes her signature song. It was, of course, originally recorded by her label mate, Otis Redding, a few years earlier and written by him. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm What's happening musically and attitude-wise on Respect? Why does this song endure as Aretha's signature hit, even through all of her many hits that will come after it? Well, this was an era in which the Vietnam War was going on mm -hmm. and things were coming out of the early 60s, just love songs. You have some of the rock groups protesting the war. You have people singing songs about changing the world yeah. and could everyone please love each other and get it together and what have you. And here's a of fitting right into it and also have respect for yourself. What you want, baby, I got 
people are singing about and talking about and asking questions about an evolving world that's getting more dramatic all the time and people are opening up and embracing all kinds of things. Right, and it's fascinating her taking a song that was written from a male's perspective and using that to create sort of an anthem of feminism, of female empowerment, just by imbuing it with her womanness, her female perspective, her womanly power. First of all, she rearranged this song by herself. And if you ever want to get a sense beyond what an incredible singer Aretha is, what she was doing behind the scenes to remake these songs as a what we might today refer to as a producer or doing production, go listen to the original version of Respect by Otis Redding and then listen to this. And the way that she remade this song for herself is so incredible. That sort of style and stutter syncopation the background vocals which i believe were provided by her sisters and the way that she interacts and kind of call and responses with the background vocals Spelling out of respect, which was not part of the original song. The use of TCD, taking care of business, all of these little idioms that she adds to it. And just the way that she's able to interpret and sing these lyrics, this is just an incredible representation of the thing that we've been talking about since the beginning of the conversation, which is her incredible knowledge and control of her voice, but also this sort of freewheeling ability to interpret the material on the spot in a way that feels off the cuff or almost like she's just sort of riffing at the same time. It gives it this swagger, this sense of attitude, that I think is part of what is the power of this record and a lot of her best music. Absolutely. Jerry Wexler stayed with her for, I think, four or five years. This is her almost exclusive producer. And this particular era, he realized if you give Aretha a song, like say A Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which we mentioned before, and we want you to make it your own, she would go in and just let loose and do it. And he could do it time and time again. He said, no one was like Aretha. I had a rapport with Aretha. Aretha in the studio like no one else. I mean, she just instinctively knew what she could do with her voice and what the song needed to give it her own signature stamp. And he said that was the genius of Aretha. Yeah, and I think it's such a fascinating song to me on so many levels. Obviously, it became a civil rights anthem. It became a feminist anthem. But, you know, what's so intriguing to me about it is just the use of the female agency that's an element of her persona that I think really contrasts her with maybe even a Diana Ross or other big stars of this era. When you're thinking about the music of Diana Ross or girl groups that preceded this moment or whatever, there's a lot of elements of women sort of waiting for men, being sort of blown over by men, men mistreating them and them feeling kind of powerless against it. And then you listen to this song and you hear a woman essentially asserting her dominance, her agency, demanding what she deserves. That's a very novel concept for a singer in 1967, I think especially a black woman, like what that represented, the power that she portrays on this song. This 
song is going, no, you will treat me a certain way or I won't put up with it. That is such a powerful message. And I can only imagine how that must have resonated with people in this particular era. Well, and I think it made everything that came afterward in Aretha's life, it made everything pivot on exactly what you said. You know, Aretha is someone you don't mess with. You don't mess with Aretha. Yeah. And I think everything she did after that carried that same, don't screw with me. This isn't my first time at the rodeo. Yeah. There's that feeling. And I think also another thing about that that I think is just an interesting part of that is she's not a conventional beauty. She had an unconventional figure. She wasn't skinny mini. I think there was a certain freeing of that. It allowed her to inhabit a different persona than someone as prim, perfect, modelly looking as a Diana Ross or as feminine and fitting into those beauty ideals as someone like a Diana Ross. There's something about when you look at Aretha, she conveys a sense of strength and her unconventionality allows her to operate outside of the realm of respectability politics or whatever in terms of gender dynamics and period or something. Are you enjoying this episode? Do you like what you're hearing? Well, you might need to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access. If you join for just five bucks a month at the Icon tier, you'll get access to all of our bonus content. This includes deep dives into classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope with Rich Doswiak, Taylor Swift's Reputation with Britney Spanos, and Britney's Blackout with Troy McKitty, as well as reviews of new records like SZA's SOS with Owen Myers and Miley's Endless Summer Vacation with Shad D'Souza. With new episodes being published all the time, we also touch on all your favorite new songs, fluctuating pop star Pantheon on positions and so much more. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel, the guest list at my party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, and a ton of other great perks. So sign up today at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. All right, so Respect is obviously a number one smash, one of the defining hits of that era. The album that it is off of becomes a huge hit. In thinking about the rest of the music through this late 60s period on these albums like Aretha Arrives, Lady Soul, her incredible 1968 album, what's happening on the music on these records? How do they build on what's happening on Respect? I'd like to talk about some of the biggest hits from these albums like Chain of Fools, Baby I Love, Love you. You make me feel like a natural woman, obviously. What is happening on these songs that sort of is building on the aesthetics and persona that she crystallizes on respect? Well, I think that respect set her up to be a huge superstar. And that's exactly what she became. And I think as she spread her wings and was exposed to or given or chose this material to sing, she was able to get rid of worrying about the crazy husband, the father that drives her wild, the children that she has. She was able to just be what she saw herself as and what everybody celebrated her for being. She just really let loose on these things and just could really feel the songs and she'd do her own contemporary mm. thing and they would get the best musicians for her. They would do whatever she wanted. She had the incredible Sissy Houston backing her as well, yes. whose voice was amazing. Mm -hmm. If you think Whitney Houston had a great voice, which she did, <laughs> she got it from somewhere and it was Sissy Houston. Yeah, you can really hear her on songs like 1968's Ain't No Way like that soprano sound floating above Aretha's vocals. So here was Aretha supported by not just our standard background singers, but some of the top 
singers in the recording world. Sissy Houston, amazing. An amazing friendship all the way to the end. And she was able to really do something. A great example of how Aretha Franklin can sort of own anything and pummel it with her just force of personality, which is true of a lot of great pop stars. They can morph through genre, eras, whatever. And it's their force of her sheer Aretha-ness is the ever-present thing, no matter what genre she's doing. But I was so interested in so many of the hits from this era, like Baby I Love You, a number four hit. Again, the real sort of ability for her to create stakes around sexual and romantic situations that I think arises from that gospel singing, from that church singing. There's a real urgency to the lyrics and the way that she sings them that would be something that you might save for praising the Lord that then ends up being funneled into these songs about love and romance that I think makes them incredibly powerful. And then I was thinking about this idea of the fool, the man as a fool or a woman as a fool. One of her signature songs is Chain of Fools, a song that's simply about how she's having this realization that she's one amongst a chain of women who are being mistreated by a man. There's so much pain inherent in her voice. I kept thinking about, yes, she's posing it as I'm part of a chain of women who are being mistreated by men, but then that image of the chain coming from the voice of a black woman in this particular moment kind of links it again, as we were talking about earlier, to this broader history or this sort of greater pain that she captures in her voice, even when singing about something as mundane as romance and sex that makes these songs have these meanings, this soulfulness that is not necessarily even there in the text, but that she brings to to it through her singing. I'm so moved by that in thinking about a song like Chain of Fools. A couple more songs I just want to make sure we touch on in this era. Obviously, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which is on 1968's Lady Soul, written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. This is one of her signature vocals. It's one of her signature hits. It doesn't have that same sort of stomping heat that a lot of these other songs we've been talking about have. This is a slower song. There's big ornate orchestral flourishes on it. It's a song that really speaks about Aretha finding herself and being herself in a maybe more racial context. It was the era where black women and black men were wearing afros and being their natural self. So I think there was a key to that as well. And Aretha started wearing the African turbans and what have you and, right. and kind of getting in touch with her roots. So I think the naturalness, that whole word and that whole concept in this beautiful song, it's another aspect of it that really drives it home. And it's one of the most beautiful and timeless songs that Aretha has ever recorded. What a song. This is just one of those ones that just bowls you over every single time you hear it. I mean, her vocal on this song is just absolutely thunderous and so moving. And 
It's so interesting too, I want to ask you in relation to her blackness. I mean, she was a huge figure of the civil rights movement following respect. How was she seen in relation to the civil rights movement in this period where she's one of the biggest pop stars of the moment? How does she embody or interact with that? Is that something she owns? Is that something she distances herself from? How do you see that? I think it's something that she naturally came to. It goes back to her father being so close with Martin Luther King and the whole civil rights movement so that she, just by who she was and the songs that she sang and just the way she carried herself, it was a very be proud of yourself. Yeah. Be proud of who you are. Get in contact with who you personally are. Right. Whether it's a black woman, a white woman, whatever it is, be in tune with yourself. Be true to yourself. Be natural. Mm. And I think that natural woman sort of thing resonated with her. Aretha's not trying to be someone else anymore. Aretha's not trying to be Dionne Warwick. Right. Dionne is uniquely Dionne. Aretha is uniquely Aretha. I mean, I just think about her on a song like Think, for instance, singing Freedom. These songs became anthems of this moment of 1968, one of the most seismic shifts in American history, one of the biggest years of the civil rights movement. Is it fair to characterize her as one of the main voices of this movement? Well, yes, we've got the Detroit riots, the Newark riots, the assassination of Reverend Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. It's a world in flux. Right. And Aretha is not inciting violence or saying peace, everybody. She's just saying, be who you you are, be true to yourself, and it'll all somehow fall into place. She sang at King's funeral, right? Yes. And the weird girl I found. Oh, oh, oh. All we need is Jesus. To linger right so she's welded to the civil rights movement. She's absolutely welded to the civil rights movement. How would you characterize her celebrity following this run through the late 60s? Was she one of the biggest stars in the world? Who are her fans? Is her music crossing over out of black audiences into white audiences? How would you characterize her celebrity in this period? During this period, absolutely. She was a pop star, a rock star, a soul star. She absolutely owned it. She owned all of that. Everybody has their era where their impact is amazing. No matter what they do, no matter what they touch, people flock to it. And this was the era where no matter what Aretha got a hold of in the studio, it happened. But with show business, when you get to the top, there's only one way to go. You start to lose your audience. New people come along. Maybe the era changes, the musical styles change, the 70s synthesizers come in. We're not doing full orchestra. We're doing maybe some synthesized things. Look at what Stevie Wonder's doing. Oh, we got to incorporate that in Aretha's records. So things start to change and morph. And for a good period of time, I'd say 67, 8, 9, 70, 71, 72, anything she touched during that seven-year period, amazing. Yeah. She really owned it. So this we could characterize this as her like in imperial phase in the modern parlance, right? Absolutely. There's that grouping of those canonical late 60s albums and hits. Respect, Think, I Say a Little Prayer, Chain of Fools, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Those are her establishing hits and they have a specific sound to them. They're that soul R&B sound. Then you've got this interesting period in the early 70s that was fascinating to me, defined by, I think, one of her best records, 
from this period, which is Young, Gifted, and Black, 1972, where her sound changes a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about just that early 70s period prior to the slump? She's still big, but the sound changes a bit. Exactly. Things are starting to change about 1972. And other people are coming in. The 60s era hit makers aren't making as many hits as they used to. There's a whole new group coming in. There's Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. There's Joni Mitchell. There's Carole King coming into her own. Here she helps Aretha come into her own. Then Carole King comes into her own. The singer-songwriter era, kind of. Exactly. Where it becomes less about this interpreter, soul, singers, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it becomes about, Carole King's not like a virtuoso singer. She's like the Taylor Swift of her time or something like that. Exactly. And now you've got an era where writing your own material about your personal experiences and sitting down and accompanying yourself with guitar, piano, whatever it is you do, that was that era. That's the James Taylor, Carol King. Joni Mitchell. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a whole new focus. And Aretha fits into it as well. She's writing songs like First Snow and Kokomo off of the Young, Gifted, and Black album. It was the first snow in Kokomo. Daydreaming, rock steady. She's doing different things. You listen to a song like Daydreaming, it's almost psychedelic or something like that. got Donny Hathaway playing the electric piano on it. There's these 70s psych rock flourishes. Her vocals are almost ethereal and dreamy on it. And then obviously you were mentioning Rocksteady earlier, like a 70s funk song, almost like a pre-disco-y sounding song. Like a Commodore song or something like that. Exactly, because that's what music is revving up to become within the next two years. Yeah. This is the beginning also, I think, of something you were getting at earlier in the conversation, which is her ability to mutate with the time. She really did, in these early 70s records, adapt to new things and prove herself equally sort of virtuosic at various different styles of music. She was able to move with the times, but as you were insinuating, that doesn't necessarily continue through the mid to late 70s. So what exactly happens here? Like, Why does Aretha's commercial success slump following Young, Gifted, and Black through like the mid-70s and late-70s? Well, she started doing a lot of experimental material. She got in the studio with Quincy Jones to do an all-jazz album during this exact era. This morphed into her 1973 album, Hey Now Hey, The Other Side of the Sky. Mm. And it started out being the Quincy Jones album, Quincy having a great jazz background, orchestrating things for Sarah Vaughan in the 60s. Now he's doing huge movie soundtracks. He becomes a celebrity on his own, has his own albums, has Ashford and Simpson singing on his songs, but he's there. So they start out in the studio and this is going to be the big Quincy Jones, Aretha Franklin collaboration. Well, then things didn't quite work out. So the album ended up half the Quincy Jones material and then half a bunch of experimental things. And it kind of missed the mark in a way.
although she was still on the charts and doing things, it was starting to slip away. Yeah. The era was changing and she wasn't quite sure where it was going or what direction to follow. When you say that era was changing, what was changing? You did a really nice job earlier of talking about kind of like the singer-songwriter wave of the early 70s. What's happening in the mid to late 70s that you think is sort of not congruous totally with whatever Aretha's attempting? Well, the disco era starts. Right. The discotheque startup. Everybody's chasing that disco sound. You've got the Hughes Corporation with Rock the Boat. You have in 1975, all of a sudden, Donna Summer is it. Mm -hmm. And Aretha is welded to late 60s, early 70s. Here's a whole new ball game coming out of Germany. Giorgio Moroder producing Donna Summer. A whole new thing. Love to love you, baby. Right. Aretha's not going to moan and groan like she's having sex <laughs> like Donna Summer can. She's not going to be able to pull that off. She cannot pull off that kind of music. Yeah. So she stays away from it. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, given that disco was such a vehicle for comebacks for a lot of Black female artists, Diana Ross, obviously, mm -hmm. it's really kind of surprising to me that we didn't get that from Aretha. Of course, she's not going to do Love to Love You, Baby, or I Feel Love. And I'm interested in this to this shift because obviously these Donna Summer records, hugely influential on the future sound of pop. Pop singing becoming really not necessarily about having the biggest voice of all time, but how to utilize the microphone, how to utilize your sexuality, the evolution of dance music coming to the fore of what pop music will be for kind of like the rest of time. The centrality of the dance floor becomes such a big deal here. But I was kind of shocked going back through this that Aretha didn't have like an I'm every woman. It seems like that would have been such an easy thing for her to do. And disco was a welcoming genre to quote unquote has-beens or people that were linked to past periods. I mean, Diana Ross herself had a massive comeback through disco. She really should have had a huge disco hit. Right? There's no reason it couldn't have. Yeah. Her voice was fine. The music, it was just all the arrangements and the feeling to it. She could have brought her Aretha-ness to it and had just a huge disco hit. Yeah. Instead, she takes a different direction and she does the Sparkle album, gets away from Jerry Wexler, not in a bad way, but it was like, maybe it's time to try some other things. Right. Because they had a good relationship overall. They do, basically. It continued, but but he became welded to that era as well. And I think she felt that she had to move on and try other producers. She had to go with the people who were making hits. So Curtis Mayfield had just had Superfly, which was, I love that soundtrack album, you know, kind of a funky 70s crazy thing. Oh, So she's like Curtis Mayfield. So they end up doing the Sparkle album, the movie Sparkle, yeah. starring Irene Cara and Philip Michael Thomas. And it's about a girl group and it's sort of the Supremes, but it's not the Supremes, it's a girl group movie. Right. So Atlantic is offered the soundtrack album while Irene Cara has yet to become the Irene Cara of fame. She's not a household name. We're not going to sell a million copies of an Irene Cara-led soundtrack album. Let's take Aretha in the studio with Curtis Mayfield, let her do the entire Sparkle album and make it something. And I thought it was great.
but it didn't really produce any hits. Everyone was doing disco. Everyone was chasing Donna Summer. Gloria Gaynor was becoming huge. Yeah. Aretha was suddenly getting lost in the dust. Yeah, it's a fine album and definitely a high point in her career, but it didn't become a commercial hit. Is Aretha already sort of seen as the legend just for those late 60s and early 70s recordings? And simultaneously, other side of the coin, is she seen as a has-been? What's the view of her from the general public in the late 70s or so? Well, well, she's not necessarily a has-been, but she, in this era, is looked at as an icon of a different era. Now we're in the post-Vietnam War sexual revolution disco 70s. Go out, get high, dance all night, right. have sex, go wild. This is not really the Aretha image. This is not really the Aretha arena. You're not going to see Aretha at Studio 54. Mm. You're not going to see this kind of Aretha Franklin. And she's not believable in it. I mean, as we both mentioned, she could have had a disco hit that was huge, yeah. but she decided not to chase that. When she finally did decide to kind of stick her foot in the water, she got Van McCoy to produce her last Atlantic album. Yeah. And Van McCoy had been a disco star at the very beginning of disco. You know, it seemed like it could work. It didn't work at all. She needed Niall Rogers or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she should have come in and done the Aretha album. I'm wondering, was she seen as cool in the late 60s? Or is she always sort of seen as kind of above the fray in some way or some sort of monument? Well, it falls into the use of one of those favorite words. She becomes a diva. Yeah. She even did an album. The last album yeah. was called La Diva. Right, She right, became right. the embodiment of a diva. Yeah. I'm Aretha. I'm not doing that. There was this kind of perceived attitude well, I'm not chasing, you know, right. the Donna Summer stuff. I'm Aretha. Well, Diana Ross was a diva and she did that. Yeah, but she was getting lost. Her musical career was kind of losing it at that point and she needed a boost. Yeah, but same with Aretha. Yeah, exactly. Diana jumped at it. Yeah. Aretha avoided it. Right, right, right. So how does her legendary Atlantic run end? And then how does that lead into one of the most unlikely pop comebacks of all time in the 1980s when she signs with Clive Davis? What is the machinations? Do they drop her? essentially? Aretha decides not to sign again with Atlantic. Oh, okay. After a series of flops, yeah. Exactly. I mean, Atlantic would have gladly taken her, but she's no longer working with Jerry Wexler. Mm -hmm. Everything she touches does not turn to gold anymore. Right. The La Diva album and the U album and the other albums she did, her last Atlantic albums, a bunch of them aren't even out on CD. They're like forgotten things. Right. And she's completely lost in the shuffle and she's frustrated as hell. She'd had this love affair with Ken Cunningham, had her fourth child with Ken Cunningham. They broke up. Her music changed. The era changed. She wasn't hitting it with Jerry Wexler. She wasn't hitting it with Curtis Mayfield songs. Mm -hmm. Everything was in a frustrating era. And a lot of the 60s and early 70s people were kind of lost in the shuffle. They were, as we've said, welded to a different era and that era has passed. And also the turn of the 1980s was one of the most radical shifts in pop music ever. I mean, this is the moment where electronic music takes center stage. I mean, things that you would never have associated with Aretha Franklin, who was known for 
for her organic qualities, for these amazing Muscle Shoals productions, for her voice, this sort of godly instrument that was like the paragon of authenticity and of strength and like Olympian effort. You have this musical shift and then you have a shift to these icons of the early 80s that are not operating on the same value system that we cared about with soul singers in the late 60s. You're dealing with the birth of a Madonna, the birth of all of these artists that are not about virtuosic talent. They're about Machiavellian 360 degree thoughts on what a pop star should be, visuals, and it's not about having great singing talent. The whole nature of the industry changes, which is so incredibly fascinating when you think about someone like Aretha Franklin somehow finding her way through this. It's one of the funniest, most unexpected comebacks in pop history, I think. Well, absolutely. And what happens circa 1980, first of all, disco dies instantly. Right. All of a sudden, the disco era is over. And punk comes in and a stripped down sound and Elvis Costello and even Linda Ronstadt jumps into it with her Mad Love album. Carly Simon gets into it. Mm. Also, Clive Davis decides he wants to bring back some of his icons. Mm. He gets Dionne Warwick and Dionne Warwick suffered the same problem. Huge 60s singer, a little bit in the the early 70s. Then she kind of disappears into the background. He brings back Dionne Warwick, huge. Grammy Awards gold album Dionne Warwick's back who would Clive Davis like to bring back Carly Simon and Aretha Franklin he signs Carly revitalize her career he's determined to bring back Aretha big time so she's got these flop albums that she's just done the last three or four years at Atlantic he decides to put her together with one of her favorite people who's a session producer from Atlantic, Arif Martin, and brings him in, brings in Chuck Jackson, who's producing some R&B hits, puts them in the studio. And Aretha's covering almost some unlikely things on that first album she did, just called Aretha. I mean, she's covering the Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes. She's doing some unconventional things for Aretha, but it's bringing her back to very classy, contemporary, what's happening now kind of music. Yeah. So that album gets good reviews, doesn't become a gigantic hit, but it's enough to really establish her. He wants to establish, okay, you want to be a diva? Let's make you a classy diva. Uh-huh. Let's get Hollywood photographer George Harrell to take the cover photo of your next album. Let's make you look like a glamorous 30s Hollywood star. So they put her on a stack of suitcases. She's showing off her legs. She's got a fur over her shoulder she's in seventh heaven aretha franklin the diva is back and it got a lot of attention and i put it together with someone else classy give her a duet with george benson love all the hurt away yeah But keep her funky. Hold on, I'm coming. I mean, she does funky stuff. She does 
Classy stuff. Right. Okay, we brought her back to the public eye. Let's make her a hit maker again. Right. Because none of these songs are particularly huge. They're minor hits. No, they aren't. But at least it drags her out of yeah, the, the doll oh drums. God, did you hear those last couple? <laughs> yeah. It at least drags her out of the quicksand. Yeah, sure. And then brings her back to classy divadom. Okay. There's this new kid on the block, this heavy set guy that always wanted to be Dionne Warwick, always wanted to be Diana Ross, always wanted to be Aretha Franklin. He calls himself Luther Vandross. Let's put <laughs> Luther Vandross and Aretha Franklin in the studio and see what happens. Bingo, yeah. jump to it. Yeah. Aretha yeah. is back. Aretha's back on the radio. It's diva heaven. Yeah. It's absolute diva heaven. This song could not sound more like 1982 than anything else on earth. I mean, this is the most 1982 sounding song I've ever heard in my life. It is. I adore that song. <laughs> that rubbery electronic bass line. The whole thing is like. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that funky kind of Ray Parker Jr. sort of sound to it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very 80s. Right. But it's also Aretha being the most Arethanist. Girl, I got to go. You know, yeah. that whole thing. Girl, I got to go. Who couldn't love that? That's our Aretha. The attitude. Exactly. So Jump To It brings her back to a certain stature. Right. Number one R&B hit. Exactly. Then they repeat the process with Get It Right, which I think is a lot of fun too. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because Luther just knows what to do with Aretha's voice and they're having fun in the studio. It served to bring her back to the charts. And also, we're moving into the MTV era. Yeah. Now, you not only have to sound good, you've got to look good on television as well. Not only the rock and roll artists, but Aretha's got to look great in her videos too. I got to also say, I feel like an important thing before we talk about this next record, 1985's Who's Doom and Who, which is obviously her big, splashy 80s comeback record, is it's so interesting because we talk so much on the show about the short shelf life of pop stars and I think it's only gotten worse as time has gone on. The ageism, once you're out, it's really hard to get back in. Once you hit your mid to late 30s, it kind of seems like it's over. The 80s, the early 80s, there was a couple instances of pop stars from the 60s and 70s being able to find new life. And I think most importantly in setting up Who's Zooming Who, we should talk just briefly that Tina Turner releases Private Dancer in 1985 and has the biggest hit of her career at age 40 or in her early 40s. And I feel like that feels like important groundwork for something Aretha might or must have been looking at or Clive must have been looking at when they were thinking about creating Who's Zooming Who. The 1984 Private Dancer album was huge for Tina Turner. Yeah. So exactly, this is the blueprint for what has to be done to Aretha. Yeah. We not only brought her back, we've got to give her a huge explosive hit that is 
something believable for Aretha. What's more believable than the Queen of Detroit than a car song? Right. The Freeway of Love. Right. Oh my God. Yeah, not not just I found love on a two-way highway. I want the freeway. I want a zoom. I want to really do something. Yeah. You know what's so interesting to me about Freeway of Love, which is a huge comeback hit, hits number three on the Hot 100, her biggest hit since the late 60s, probably. We were talking about what defines those late 60s, early 70s Aretha song, the sort of pained woman, the scorned woman, trying to find her strength through men that are dogs and trying to command respect. And there's a lot of pain mixed in with joy. There's a lot of layers of emotion. I feel like on Freeway of Love, which is a great song, I mean, just a total banger, the elements of the songs change. They're much more unencumbered and less complicated emotionally. They feel more ecstatic and less complex in terms of the emotions that they're writing. Would you agree with that characterization? I would agree. They're fun songs. They're lighter songs. Yeah. We're not talking about society and racial dynamics and women's rights. They're fun songs or they're songs that everybody can identify with. Yeah. They're not crowd dividing. They're crowd uniting. And I think that... Clive Davis put her together with people that really respected, respect, mm -hmm. respected Aretha. I mean, he's got Carlos Santana playing guitar on one of the tracks on Who's Zooming Who. He's got Clarence Clemens, who is the sax player for Bruce Springsteen playing on Freeway of Love. He puts Aretha in the studio with Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart of Eurythmics. He not only gives her the songs of hit makers, he's putting her in the studio with the people that are the big hits of the 80s. I'm also thinking the rhythmic song so interesting. Sisters are doing it for themselves, obviously. An incredibly memorable hit from this record with Annie Lennox. You know, it's interesting also thinking about Aretha as both a traditionalist and kind of like a feminist icon. Like I think about her on the one hand, you think lady of God, super respectable church lady. And then on the other hand, she eases into this idea of feminism, these very forward thinking notions of women's empowerment, feminist anthems. This song is a celebration of the conscious liberation of the female state. She contains multitudes in that way too. Her traditionalism versus her forward thinking, her being on the forefront of a lot of cultural movements. Exactly. And she's also fitting into the MTV format, the Freeway right. of Love video. She's in her element because yeah. she's part of that era as well. And as you've mentioned, and I fully agree, one of the most unlikely giant comebacks of the music industry is that someone so welded to the 60s in the 80s becomes a huge rock star. A hundred percent. It's the rock star era of Aretha Franklin. We should also be mentioning that her collaborator on Who's Zoom and Who, who really gives her a very modern time. I mean, she traverses every contemporary style of the mid-80s on this record and does them all with real gusto. What a fun record this is. But her collaborator is this guy, Narado Michael Walden, who becomes an incredibly influential producer who many of listeners to this show will know from Whitney Houston's How Will I Know, Mariah Carey's Vision of Love. I mean, this guy was like a big deal. And you can hear that. You know, I kept thinking about How Will I Know, one of the other big hits on this record, Who's Doing Who, the title track, literally, same year as How Will I Know, sounds very very, very similar to it. Oh, 
And obviously, you brought up Sissy Houston earlier. You think about the two greatest voices of the generation or of all time, maybe in pop music. I mean, I think the two you might pick out of a hat are Aretha and Whitney. It's interesting sort of seeing this connection between the two of them in very different eras of their career. Whitney's just starting out. Aretha's having this massive comeback. They're working with the same people. They have very different voices, but it was just fascinating to me thinking about that torch passing connective tissue between the two of them. So Aretha has her last number one hit and probably her last real smash, smash, smash hit the following year. And my absolute favorite song that we're going to talk about today. I mean, I love this freaking song so much. It's her 1986 collaboration, her first number one since Respect, literally, with George Michael, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. I don't know what else to say about this song except that I just absolutely adore this song. I know that he idolized her and that this was such a big moment for him that he really grew up worshiping her and he thought she was out of reach for him to have on the song. He originally envisioned it for a duet with Michael Jackson. There was a lot of things he was thinking about. If you were going to come up with a more unlikely duet, in a way, George Michael at the time, well, or maybe it's likely you pick the biggest male superstar. It's kind of like, would this work? Could this work? It worked. It's a work. I was going to say, there's also something beautiful about the gay man diva relationship that is kind of a subtext to this song. That's what I keep thinking when I hear it. Nobody worships a canonical diva like a gay man does. And here you have that rendered in musical form. Exactly. This song is pure ecstatic joy, an absolute perfect pop song. This is George Michael's imperial moment. Every song he made in this era is so incredible. But I mean, to see them together, and there are clips of them performing it on one of the stops on the Faith Tour. I absolutely love this song. And I just think it's so incredibly touching for her to be having a hit with this guy at this particular moment, 20 years after her establishing moment. What an incredible moment. And to see them together is just, again, an unlikely duo, but just one of the best songs of all time for me personally. That song was just amazing. Yeah. And it appealed to everybody. Younger fans, 20 years younger than, than Aretha Franklin's original fans, bought it because of George Michael and fell in love with Aretha. Aretha's yeah. fans got introduced to George Michael. It was like cross-pollination mm -hmm. to the max. It, it did everything. And as you said, was the first number one hit she'd had in years. And it was unbelievable. It became a defining song of the 80s. I love this song so much. I've listened to this song probably 300 times in the last two weeks because I just like can't get enough of it. So that's kind of her last real smash. I mean, she has this song Through the Storm with Elton John in 1989. And she has sporadic hits through the late 80s it seems like. Is there anything else you want to say about her late 80s run that feels notable before we kind of move on to her legacy? Is there anything important that happens post I Knew You Were Waiting For Me? After the explosion on the charts with George Michael, she continued doing the same formula, but again, she kind of lost touch with things. She was covering Sly and the Family Stones hits, Everyday People. Yeah. She was trying different things. She kind of got lost again. Then the music changed. The 90s became another scene. And it was a different sound and just a whole new group of people. Yeah. And she's also a middle-aged woman at this point. <laughs> exactly. In the 90s, icon, idol, 
legend, mm -hmm. but not a current hit maker at all. Yeah. So Lauren Hill comes along, the miseducation of Lauren Hill and becomes this black female singer, songwriter of the era, late 90s producer. And she gives Aretha one more big bump with A Rose is Still a Rose, an album that she did in the late 90s. That was another peak, but then things started to not fall apart, but... Enter legacy territory. Exactly. She's fully in legacy territory at this point. Yeah. But she does keep trying. She keeps doing things. She produces her own album on her own label that goes nowhere. She ends up Walmart distributing it. It was kind of a mess. Record labels weren't chasing her. She was having to do her own thing. She did a Christmas album that was aligned to Borders, bookstores, which is fine, but she was no longer looked at as a huge hit maker. And then the last album she ends up doing, Aretha Sings the Great Diva Classics. Right. She's doing Adele songs, which is fine. She's still trying to recapture that. And it's an admirable effort, but it didn't become the huge hit that she wanted to be. But she's a legend. She's Aretha. She doesn't have to chase things. No, I have two things to say. One of which is just following her last peak, you have this wave of divas, Whitney, Mariah, Celine, that are so clearly in her shadow that emerges in the early 90s. And, you know, my earliest memories of Aretha are these divas live VH1 concerts, one of which was an iconic tribute to Aretha where it's like all of them are on stage together singing with her and it is an absolute bombast firework brigade of all of these big voiced women singing over each other and it's just, that's my earliest memories of Aretha because I was born in 87. I wasn't alive for any of Aretha's peak eras but I certainly remember knowing from a very early age that Aretha was a monument. That was just how I always experienced her and in the late 90s I just remember being like, oh, all the artists that I love, like Mariah Carey, my queen, all she does is big up Aretha. That's who she loves. And so I always knew Aretha as just the legend, the icon, the grand dame, and a very hilarious and shady interview, which is the last thing that I want to bring up, which is <laughs> you were talking about her last album, and I went back and got to rewatch one of the most iconic, I think, last things that Aretha put into this world, which is this interview she did around that album, where she gets asked to comment on other pop stars and she drops her <laughs> iconic thing about Taylor Swift. The guy goes, what do you think about Taylor Swift? She goes, mm, nice gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> <laughs> your new album is about divas. I want to just sort of throw out a few names of divas and sort of get your one word reaction, sort of get your impression mm. of various singers. So when I say that the name Adele, what comes to mind? Mm -hmm. Young singer, good singer. Alicia Keys. Um, young performer, good writer, producer. Taylor Swift. Okay, great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. Uh, Whitney Houston. Whitney was a, a talent, mm. definitely a talent. She had a gift. Mm. And Sissy's baby. And let's sort of change genres a little bit. Nicki Minaj? Nicki Minaj, hmm. <laughs> now I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's just so great. She's bigger than her song. She's like Mount Rushmore. She's just Aretha. And then maybe the last thing before I just want to ask you one question about her legacy is she could still freaking turn it. I mean, watching that performance at the Kennedy Center thing, I was moved to tears. I mean, Carol King is losing her mother effing mind. Barack Obama's crying. And she plays the piano, as we mentioned. She's kind of an underappreciated piano virtuoso. And then she gets up at the end and drops the fur coat on the ground and takes you make me feel like a natural woman home. And it is godly. It is church. It's inspiration. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And this is 2010, 2011, something like that. 16, maybe. I think it was. 16. So it was like real end of her life. She still had it. So many of these divas, they lose their voices. I mean, she was still crushing it. I mean, everyone in that room was on their feet. And I was just like, this is one of the greatest voices we've ever experienced in the history of recorded music, if not the one. I mean, if not the voice of all time. What else can you say about it? She is that. She will forever be the voice of popular music history, I think. Absolutely. It's no wonder that when they established the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the very first woman to ever be inducted, Aretha mm. Franklin. Mm. No question. Yeah, fitting. What do you think is her legacy, looking at the pop that's come after her, which is kind of all the pop. <laughs> where do we see her legacy when you look at music today? Where can we still see her impact? She's definitely the most iconic R&B singer that the recording industry has ever, ever dealt with. Yes. And she continues to be an absolute giant in everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. Every female singer that comes along wants to do some aspect of what Aretha did. And she is held up as the gold standard of R&B diva. And the whole respect moniker She's also the diva who respects herself the most and wants you to stand up and be all you can be because she became something so huge. She had a dream and she made that dream a reality that just blew people away. Aretha Franklin is one of the most unique singers the world has ever known. The only thing I would add to that is most people can't sing like Aretha Franklin, right? Most of the pop singers that have come after her can't touch her natural innate gift as a singer. But I do think that attitude, that persona, the respect, the woman who gets on record and goes, you will listen to me, I set the terms, that is such a pop trope that has carried through music 
through to the present day. You could be talking about everybody from Gaga and Katy Perry and Beyonce and even Britney, all of these people. Like the most common trope of female pop stardom is a woman getting up there and saying, I'm here to be respected and I'm here to be an empowered being on this earth. I mean, that is what many pop females trade in as their main oeuvre. And I think that you can trace a lot of that lineage back to Aretha in that moment on respect, her attitude, her persona, her setting the terms for what it meant to be a woman in this world. I think that that trope of pop female divaness is one of the most powerful that's ever been put out there. And I think you can trace a lot of that back to the figure that she struck in that moment of establishment in the late 60s. So my last question, let's talk about the pop pantheon. As we've already off-miked about, I don't really think this is debatable in any sort of way. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I'm pretty sure Aretha Franklin belongs very much in tier one of the pop pantheon. Do you agree? I totally agree. She is pop pantheon level one. Absolutely. <laughs> she is so unique, so iconic, and so huge in everyone's mind. As soon as you hear Aretha's voice, it's like, that's Aretha Franklin. That's why I love her. A hundred percent. I mean, I wish we could have more to include in this segment. I could run through the criteria really quickly just so that everybody feels comfortable. I know that no one's going to debate me on this. Continuously relevant with 12 to 15 or likely more smash hits over the span of multiple decades. Absolutely. Can be referred to mononymously and even your grandmother knows who you're referring to. Of course, numerous distinct musical eras. Yes, we've talked about that. She was able to inhabit so many different eras of music to make herself relevant through various periods of pop. At least one successful major reinvention or sonic musical visual overhaul. Absolutely, she had numerous of those and in a massively successful way in various different moments. She certainly has that. Widely noted with a long-lasting impact on the shape of the genre. Clearly, obviously, no question about that. Widely considered even by casual fans to be a pillar of the genre yes generation or decade defining yes their name means something more than the sum of their hits absolutely nothing they could do musically or extra musically could change their position obviously she is no longer with us but i think that that was true since the mid 80s i don't think that there's anything that she could have done there multimedia moments obviously legacy and impact is widely recognizable in artists who came after them clearly far enough removed clearly blah 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 i think she hits every one of those criteria with a plum. So Aretha Franklin, tier one. Last, last question for you, Mark. What is an underrated Aretha Franklin song? Something that we have not spoken about on the podcast yet that we could send the show out on. One of my absolute favorite Aretha Franklin songs, The House That Jack Built. What do you like about this one? I just love it. It has Aretha attitude. Mm -hmm. It has everything that I love about Aretha. I think that it has a little bit of a sense of humor, but it's pure Aretha. She's talking about her man. She wants Jack back. She wants him in that house. Yeah. And I love that song. I can't hear that song enough. Amazing. All right, so let's go out on the house that Jack built. Mark Bego, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me as a guest.
All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon Aretha Franklin, a certified tier one icon. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the fabulous Mark Bego for being such an incredible guest. Of course, to my man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make the show happen every week. To PJ Vernietti for his help editing this episode. And to Alex Lobo for our artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L O U I E X I V on both Twitter and Instagram. Join Pop Pantheon All Access at patreon.com slash Pop Pantheon and come to gorgeous, gorgeous Brooklyn and LA on June 16th and June 9th, respectively. And until we meet again, folks, have a wonderful life. Bye bye.